This is the Public Record Podcast, a public service of the Public Record, the Coachella Valley's Business News Weekly. Well, my guest today is Ray Blakeney, CEO and founder of Live Lingua and PodcastTalk.com. Welcome, Ray. Ken, thanks for having me on. Well, gosh, where should we start? You're an entrepreneur of uh, many facets. <laughs> um, let's start with Live Lingua. You know, I have been learning sort of Korean. And uh, let me tell you, it's very difficult. And I only wish I could find uh, someone, not a tutor so much, but someone I could just converse with like every day, because I think that's the fastest way to learn a language. And I think your site, if I understand how it works correctly, is that's kind of what you do. You connect people with a live native speaker. Is that right? That's right. We have native speakers and actually teachers on there as well. So I'll definitely back you up that the speaking to a native speaker is a great way to learn a language. Uh, I grew up, you know, I took French, I believe, for about 12 years, and I can't even say anything other than, you know, my name is in French. Uh, I moved to Mexico with the Peace Corps for three months, and I was conversational in Spanish because I was immersed in the language. So what we do at LiveLing was we actually pair you up with native tutors from whatever language you're, you're trying to do, but they're teachers. They have college degrees in education. But just being able to speak a language doesn't mean you can actually teach it. And then they guide you through conversations depending on the level you're at, but they're actually teachers so they know what to correct you on. Again, I speak English uh, pretty well. But if you ask me why ED is pronounced like a T sometimes and an ED the other times, I have no idea. A teacher would know the answer to that. Give me a feel for what the classes are like. Do you, do you have like a conversation, a normal, like a tourist conversation with these native speakers, or is it purely an instructional, you know, learn the, the particles and all that kind of thing? It actually depends on your goal. We have different programs for the goal that each person has. We actually have what we have with survival course, so our teachers can work you through that. That's if you're just going to go to a country and you want to be a tourist, right? So if you're going to go to Mexico and you just went enough to order in the restaurants, ask for directions and get around, you take the survival. Very little grammar in that, vocabulary, phrases, and it's very conversational classes. We work with some other people, like for example, we work with people in the US State Department, and they have to have a much higher level of these languages, right? Because subtleties in words and cultural nuances make a big difference in their job. So that curriculum is entirely different than what most people would use, and everything in between. How often do they interact with them? Is it weekly, or is that up to them? It's up to the students, exactly. We specialize in one-on-one -on -one classes, and we work on your schedule. Again, if you're going to a, a country to be a tourist, you don't need classes every single day. That's not really the point. But if you have a business reason or something else, we have students who take one hour or two hours a day. Uh, we've recently started offering unlimited lessons, so you can pay a fixed price and you have unlimited lessons for a year. And some of those people are taking advantage, but we have people taking 20 or 30 hours a week. But they have very specific goals. We don't recommend that for most people. Right. Well, there's no question we're a global economy now. So tell us why we should learn a second language or a third or fourth. Well, there's multiple reasons for learning another language, kind of going from our students and actually from my personal experience as well. I was lucky enough to grow up a polygot and um, have learned other languages since then. So on the personal level, if you're in the United States, where especially in Southern California, where most people listening to this are, Spanish is probably spoken all around you. So just to be able to communicate with, I'd say about a quarter of the population there, speaking Spanish would help you out. Sure, they might speak English, but they would feel much more comfortable if you spoke their own language. That's on a personal level. If you want to travel, you speak Spanish and you go, you know, south of the border, you can drive from, you know, the tip of Southern California all the way to the, you know, tip of Chile and kind of drive around Brazil. 
and you can communicate with everybody there in their native tongue. So that's really, really opens up the world as far as traveling and safety of traveling when you're traveling to those countries because you can now communicate. You're not kind of stuck without it being able to say anything. And then for the final reason is, of course, the global market, which you touched on, Ken. It's if you can speak multiple languages, let's just say you became fluent in Korean or Mandarin and you work for a company that has a plant over in Korea or China suddenly a promotion that somebody else you might have been passed over for before is now open to you because you can now go over and speak with the, the people in the office over there um, there are actually studies out there that if you speak multiple languages your salary does act is actually higher than people who don't well it'd be a wonderful opportunity to work in different countries for mm-hmm. short periods of time this is just a spanish offering that you have on this set is that correct Though our main one is Spanish, but we also offer, like you said, Korean, Mandarin. We talk the top 11 languages. Yep. Uh, you just kind of choose the other ones, and we have tutors in all of them. Okay, great. And give us the web address for that one. Sure. LiveLingua.com, L-I-V-E-L-I-N-G-U-A.com. And we give you your first class for free, so you can try us with a teacher. Have one free class just to see if it fits what you need. And you're a serial entrepreneur, so <laughs> tell us about PodcastTalk.com. Sure. So PodcastTalk.com is... My new venture, new being I've been working on about a year and a half, we're still in beta. It's a software product that actually helps you get booked as a guest on podcasts on autopilot. We've built the most extensive database of podcasts with podcast contact information out there. And you can go in there and search, for example, Ken, you can say, I want to be on podcasts that are about entrepreneurship, that have released an episode in the last three weeks, that have at least 4.5 stars, uh, and have the word pink flamingo in their description. I challenge anybody to go on Google and find those podcasts right now using all those criteria I just gave or on iTunes or Spotify. In our system, you click search and in less than a second, it'll give you every podcast in the world that matches that criteria. Then you can go through there and kind of pick the ones that you think you want to be a guest on, depending on what your goal is. And we have a system that actually helps you pitch them as well. So we send a pitch emails, your first email, your three-day follow-up, a seven-day follow-up, a 14-day follow-up to try to get you booked on these shows. So it's kind of a set and forget once you set up a few hundred podcasts you want to be on. Depending on your plan, we'll pitch 25, 50, or 100 a month. And generally, if you're doing a good job of picking your podcast, you can expect, expect a 10 to 20% response rate. So even on our lowest plan, you're talking about getting interviewed once every week or two. And on our highest plan, we're talking about almost every single day, you'd be on a podcast. Don't, hi- don't recommend that for everybody um, because that you can get burned out pretty quickly. I've done it. I've been on almost 200 shows in the last year and a half. Um, but you know, I'm testing out our own product and promoting it. So that's... I have a more vested interest than most people have. Is it all automated or is there some human interaction? It is all automated except for the setting up of the actual campaigns, right? So you have to pick your own campaign, you know, podcast you want to pitch. We have a system for you to create the pitches and we even have a wizard which helps you customize it. So you'll have all the podcast episodes there, all their social media, all their Twitter, everything on the same screen. It'll all be there. You can even listen to a few episodes from within our interface. As soon as we get a reply from a podcast, either saying you're booked or I'd like more information or please fill out this intake form, we forward you an email saying, hey, somebody replied and you take it from there. But you don't have to be checking into our system every day. We send the pitches out based on your plan um, for you. So yeah, once you set up, Forget about it until you kind of run through all those podcasts and you want to create another campaign. So in looking at your bio, I would say you must be one of the world's foremost experts on surviving pandemics. Uh, <laughs> kind, of, kind of give us the short story on the two pandemics you've uh, sure. managed to recover from. Yeah, so generally the best business ideas I've ever come up with and the biggest businesses I've built have come from pandemics. So the first one was Live Language. It came around because of the Mexican swine flu. 
For those of you who don't remember, about 14 years ago, almost exactly, um, there was this plague called the Mexican swine flu, and everybody thought it would be what COVID is now. So at the time, my wife and I, we owned a chain of brick and mortar language schools in Mexico. And we had trouble getting students, obviously, because they closed all the borders of Mexico. And all of our students were coming from the United States and Europe for an immersion program in Mexico. So overnight, our flow of customers almost died. We had just started the business at that point. We were less than 12 months in. And I had just come out of the Peace Corps. We started it with $3,000 in our bank account. Uh, we'd been doing pretty well for about six months, but obviously our savings weren't really big. And at that point, it was actually my wife who had the idea when the swine flu hit and we had no students in the school, why don't we reach out to our previous students and see if they wanted to take class over Skype? Keep in mind, 2008, that was actually a revolutionary idea, right? Nowadays, it's just so common that everybody says, well, obviously. But back then, nobody was doing this. So we emailed them all. And to our surprise, about half the students said yes. So my background is a software engineer, so I decided to throw up an awful looking website and say, hey, if our students want this, maybe somebody else on the internet wants this. So we did that. I used something called search engine optimization to kind of make us number one in Google. And to our surprise, two things happened. First off, the swine flu fizzled out. Within 30 days, our school was fully booked. But within six months, we were making more, way more money on this side hustle of one or two hours of our online classes than we were at our brick and mortar schools. So that's where LiveLingua kind of came from. The second one is podcast talk. It's almost exactly the same thing. So when COVID hit back in March, 2020, LiveLingua actually, we got lucky. We had one of those businesses that actually took off about, we had about a 40% rise in signups in that March, right? Because everybody was stuck at home and said, hey, I wanna learn, I should, might as well learn Mandarin or Japanese or Spanish or Korean, right? So they started signing up. So I wanted to get in front of a new audience. And we did SEO, we did Facebook marketing, but I'm like, let me get on some podcasts. Up until then, I'd been on about 15 or 20 shows. People I've met when I speak at conferences or people that are friends of mine that have podcasts. I had never made a concerted effort to get on podcasts before. So I went on Google like everybody else does when they're starting things. And I decided podcast to be a guest on. I kind of put that in Google search and you know, I'm like, that should be easy. Nothing. I mean, you know, half those podcasts were inactive. They hadn't created episodes in years. It, it simply did not work when you go that way. So I decided maybe somebody else does this. So I reached out to agencies that do podcast booking and they were charging thousands of dollars to get me on shows and without any guarantee of anybody listening to the show. So again, my background being software engineer, I kind of looked into it and said, okay, there's gotta be a better way to do this. And that's pretty much how Podcast Off was born. I wrote the first minimum viable product MVP myself. Um, I do have a team of programmers right now. And we built the system to, you know, make every podcast in the world searchable, clean up all those email contacts and build the email system on the back end so people can pitch through our system um, and hopefully get their message out there. Where we not we don't want to be a spam system. I'll say with podcast talk, for example, the maximum plan is hundred emails a month. So we're talking three emails a day. That's the most amount of spam you could possibly send through our system because we do not want to be spamming podcasters. We want to be a legitimate connection between great podcast guests and the great podcasts out there. Now you run your business remotely, is that right? Correct. All of my, I have not sat in an office or had a business suit in 15 years since I was in corporate America. So the pandemic has created a lot of interest, at least among workers, to work remotely. And employers are still pushing back. They want to have everybody in the office. You want to speak to that conflict? Yeah. So there are obviously some caveats in there. If you're running a restaurant, the whole virtual thing is not probably, you know, having your waiters virtual is probably not going to work for you. But anybody who's got a white collar job, I believe that at least partially working from home is a great thing for any business owner to work. They've already done the studies, right? As soon as COVID came out, everybody expected productivity to go down. It actually went up. 
There's no on and off time, and I think that's wrong. Uh, everybody should have work hours, whether you're home or not. No boss or business owner should expect that just because you're working from home that you can bother somebody at nine o'clock at night, right? If it's outside their work hours. And I'm seeing a lot of that kind of culture coming out where you work from home, which means you're working all the time. And that is definitely not what I encourage for my staff. If I tell them, if you contact me after work hours, I'm not answering you. And I'm not gonna contact you after work hours or on off days either, because I, and I do not expect you to answer me on those. You know, for people who spend their days working behind a computer screen, it just seems so obvious that working at home would be productive. There's a wonderful book by Professor Cal Newport called Deep Work, where he talks about, you know, being able to concentrate undistracted for uh, at least, you know, an hour or two stretches at Mm -hmm. a time. Because in the office, you're constantly being interrupted with phone calls, people coming to your desk, distractions in the office. Um, People are saving time commuting. The typical commute in the United States is about 30 30 minutes. So that's, uh, what, five hours round trip every week. Uh, What's the pushback with uh, corporate management for remote work? Why are they so resistant to it? There are a few things. Um, And I'm, you know, I have no pushback from my end. So I'm, I'm speculating on a few of them. Some of it could be security because people are actually worried. Uh, My sister, for example, works for the U.S. government and there's sensitive information that they're worried might get out when you go home. Now there are easy security measures around that. It would take some training of the staff in order to, you know, give the the team member who's working from home a secure computer that needs a certain login to get in uh, and only used for work, right? There are quite easy workarounds for this kind of thing. I think the the biggest fear though, is this is kind of what I'm seeing, is that fear of control. They know what their job is. You know, know what they want, they should be getting done in a week, in a month. And just let them do it on their own time. And if they don't finish it in the time span you gave them that you both agreed on, then you can go talk to them and say, okay, so what's going on here? But in my experience, nine out of 10 times, they will do it. Not one out of 10 times they don't. There's actually a really valid reason for it that working in in an office would not have solved anyway. So those, in my opinion, are the two pushbacks, security and fear of giving up control. So let's say someone's an entrepreneur who is not a software engineer, but they have an idea for a internet-based business. Where do you start? Where do you oh. find the people? And and I'm sure it's probably all over the map, but give us an idea of the minimum capital investment you would need to launch a business like that. I can tell you, I launched, I launched LiveLingua for $59.99. I don't think the price has gone up since then um, for the first year. Uh, that's how much a domain and hosting cost for the first year that we were there. Uh, I would probably add a little bit more into that if you're not technical, but not really much. So what I would recommend to people who are not technical, I actually have a methodology. You can go to rayblakeney.com. It's my personal blog where you can actually test business ideas before launching them. There's there's ways to see how many people look for things online and how competitive they are. Um, But let's assume you did that. You found a business idea you wanted to do, and you're pretty sure it's a viable business, right? There are people who are willing to buy it at a price that's profitable for you. On the technical side, all you need to do Um, For those who are a little bit more, less technically inclined, these days making websites is very, very simple. Now, if your business idea is I want to build this massive SaaS uh, SaaS product, which is software as a service, to compete with Amazon, that might be a little out of your reach in the beginning. But if you want to offer your services as a consultant or whatever you're doing online, there are a few things you can do as far as creating a website. Go on a website called udemy.com. They sell courses for about $10.00 and look for a course on something called WordPress. You'll learn in about a weekend 
how to put up your own website. Super easy. If your technical knowledge is, is about the level of PowerPoint, you can make your own website. You can put it up there. You can get everything set up on a hosting for the $59.99 that I mentioned earlier. Uh, you can get an entire website out there. Then just learn some marketing skills. There's a lot of online marketing courses out there for free. Go on YouTube. Uh, look up something called SEO, search engine optimization. Look up Facebook ads if you have a little bit of capital or Google. Google, But SEO is what I recommend to all bootstrappers. It is free. Essentially, it is how you get your website to rank on Google organic search, which is when you search for stuff in Google after the ads, whoever shows up number one, number two, number three, that's organic search. And there is actually ways to make that happen. It's not... You know, I shoot myself in the foot by saying this just because they're number one, because LiveLingway is number one for a lot of these things, doesn't necessarily mean they're the best. Now, caveat, LiveLingway is the best. But does not, not because it's number one in Google, right? Um, it's because somebody has done something called SEO to put them up there. And anybody can do it. If you don't have the money, you have to put in the legwork, but you can rank on the first page of Google for almost anything, especially if you're in a smaller niche and if you're doing something more localized. Again, if you're in Los Angeles and you want something, if you want to market something, it's a lot easier to try to market beat people on a national scale if you're just trying to beat them on the local scale. So that's what I'd recommend. Just take courses for like $9. Um, that's what I meant by the investment might be a little bit more. For about 100 bucks, that you'll get all the courses you need and your one year of hosting with WordPress, which is free to install anyway. Um, and your business will be launched in about a month. Do you have any thoughts on e-learning? You know, during the pandemic, uh, we heard a lot of pushback from students and teachers and parents about uh, online courses. But um, uh, it seems to me that that's kind of a no-brainer, especially for courses that are a little bit more uh, focused. Uh, you know, not not would not be of interest to enough students in a classroom to fill thirty-two seats. Uh, you know, maybe you want to learn. Um, I don't know, um, software programming or something that, that might fill a room, but something something a little bit more focused like that. Uh, what you have any thoughts on e-learning since you're kind of in that sphere? Yeah, great question. So. I think there are two sides to the e-learning thing, and this is why people are confusing, you know, the effectiveness of e-learning. They're putting into this like grand bucket. Everything is e-learning, right? Which is true. But where people are complaining is e-learning for kids in K through 12. And I actually do agree. High school, you can get away with it. But, you know, if you have a five-year-old and you say, now sit in front of the computer for the next eight hours and stare at the teacher and behave yourself, that's just not a reasonable expectation. Um, for any parent, any school, or any teacher to have. That's where e-learning is running into issues these days. There are technical issues um, that people are getting past as well. But for a teacher of a, you know, in elementary school and secondary school, I think e-learning is not a great option. With COVID, it's obviously necessary for, in some cases, for security, you know, for the security and the health of the students. But I would not say that you should replace K through, you know, primarily K through 12 should probably not be replaced by with e-learning unless there's specific cases where the student is not able to attend the school. Now for adults, on the other hand, e-learning is invaluable because it allows you to learn what you want to learn. As somebody who comes from a family of academics but doesn't really like school, I hated learning stuff when I didn't see the point. So my whole life I told myself, I, I do not like learning. That was my internal kind of message to myself. I do not like learning. It wasn't until after I got out of college and I started reading books on business and self-growth that I realized I actually enjoy this because it's something that I can actually learn today and apply five minutes after I've read it, right? It's something that actually could change my life. 
And now I love learning. I'm a voracious learner. I learn new skills. I read at least two or three books a week. Um, that's combining Audible with reading books as well. And e-learning has been you know, instrumental in all of that, especially if I want to learn how to, like you said, code a new language, I would go on one of those websites and buy a course for $20 and learn how to do a new language. This is what we, most of our students at Live Lingual are actually adults as well. And as a result, we see much more focus because this is not, again, my story of studying French all the way through high school. I hate it. But if you're an adult coming in and taking language lessons with us, it's because it's probably your choice or it's going to make, you know, improve your career or you're going on vacation. Nobody's sitting behind you and forcing you to show up to class every day. And that for people like that, e-learning is a great medium. Let's wrap it up by giving your top two tips for business leaders. Sure. Based on the conversation we just had, I guess I'll go with the first one is trust your team, trust your staff. They will do the job even if they're from home, even if their kids are yelling in the background. If they are the right person for that position, they're the right person for that position, whether it's from home or whether it's sitting in a queue in your office. And the second thing that I'll say for business leaders that's kind of didn't come up in the conversation, but I believe strongly in is uh, plan your vacations as much as you plan your work. Uh, I'm seeing a lot of burnout among my peers, you know, working all the time, 70, 80 hour weeks. Uh, I was raised that way as well, right? You work hard for 40 years and then you enjoy your life. I find my best productivity is after I get back from vacation. So I take every three months, I take a week off. Plan rest uh, on a regular basis if you're a business leader and you'll be shocked at the kind of productivity gains you get. Ray, thanks for joining. Ken, thanks for having me. This has been the Public Record Podcast, a public service of the Public Record, the Coachella Valley's Business News Weekly. I hope you'll share this podcast with your friends and be sure to click the subscribe button. I'm Managing Editor Ken Allen. Thanks for listening.